Amen. Hey, uh, I was gone last week on vacation at the Sweeney's condo, which was awesome. Uh, and technically, I'm on vacation till Wednesday, which means I'm making this little announcement right now for free, totally for, for free. So what a, what a deal, huh? But I, I definitely wanted to be here this morning to hear uh, my friend Todd. Todd has been a part of our church for a long time. Todd, uh, as you'll find out, is just a, a really fun guy. Uh, has been a pastor, uh, done all sorts of things in his life. Um, perhaps the best part of Todd is he's married to Georgia and they have two great daughters, Autumn and Allie. But uh, I think the thing that, that I most like about Todd is Todd really likes God. He really likes Jesus. And uh, he preaches the gospel wherever he goes. So whenever I, whenever I talk to Todd, he, he, you preach the gospel to me. And I'm just excited to be here this morning and hear Todd share some of his story and preach the gospel to all of us. You know, it's funny. I, I mean, I do, I preach, you may have noticed, I preach the gospel, I hope. Um, but, but you need people to preach it to you. That's why we're here. We need to hear the story over and over again of how great our Father's love is for us and how... Uh, and, how, and to what extent he'll go to, to draw us to himself. So um, uh, I hope you'll open your hearts to what God has to say to you through Todd. His story has kind of intersected mine for a long time, back through college and up at Lookout and here. So anyway, Todd, why don't you come up here, and I want to just pray for Todd and um, pray for us, all right? Father, I thank you so much for Todd, and I thank you. Uh, oh, now we're reacting. You have that mic on, huh? Oh, that's okay. Here, I'll stand over here. I'll, I'll stand like I'm, I love you, but talk over here. So, Father, we're, <laughs> thank you so much for Todd. I thank you for Georgia, their wonderful family. Lord, I pray that um, you would open our hearts to your word, your living word, coming through Todd and intersecting and, and invading our lives and drawing us to yourself. Lord, as Todd preaches, Lord, I pray that the gospel would sink deeply into Todd as well, that you would bless him. Thank you so much for who he is, who you are in him. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, thank you, brother. Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to put this up here. Uh, at one time, I was corrected rather stringently about clomping around in cowboy boots, and so I didn't want to do that today. Well, it's going to go a little higher than that. Well, that's about it. Okie dokie, there we go. Um, it's a great honor to be here. It's a great privilege. Um, I have moments with chick flicks. And believe me, they're just moments. Moments in time when I enjoy chick flicks. In other words, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago, I got into a little streak where I really enjoyed, you know, when they fell in love. And I would even go to the, the video store and get a, get, a, get a movie, come back and put it in and couldn't wait till they fell in love, you know. Oh, they're in love. The world's opened up. That lasted for about two months. And since then, I have 15 minutes here and 15 minutes there. I had 15 minutes the other day when Georgia was watching Hope Floats, which is an old classic, you know, Sandra Bullock. And so... I was watching that, and Sandra Bullock is playing this woman called Bertie Pruitt, and she's a very down-home type, type of woman, and she goes, childhood is what you spend the rest of your life trying to overcome. And I've never heard it put quite so succinctly. She said that's what her mama, her mama taught her, you know, and I've never heard it put so simply and so succinctly as that, and I thought that's really true, and as you get older, you only find out how true that actually is. In other words, a lot of your life, you look back and you go, I reacted to that, 
Then I reacted to that, and then react back that, and react back to that, because, you know, you do that. You get to about 50, you go, man, I've had a lot of reactions, you know? So anyway, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the real one, though, that you react to is when you're very little. Because when we're very little and very, very, very vulnerable and weak, evil hits us. It's one part of this life, and I think it's one of the reasons people even get angry at God, because evil hits little children. And evil hits hit every one of us at some point, you know. And when that wound comes, it's very deep, and it has a lot of poison in it. And if you think back, you got hit when you were little, and you didn't have the slightest idea what to do with it. Because that poison enters, and it enters deep, and it's dark, and it's hard, and it's mean. And you don't understand it at all. And we really do spend a lot of the rest of our life trying to overcome some of those wounds in our childhood because we have just no capacity to deal with them whatsoever. We're, my, my daughter says we're just little nuggets. That's how she puts it, and it's so true, you know. Um, now, later on, what the question you'll ask is, where did that wound come from? There's going to be a point when that wound has to be dealt with, that pain has to be overcome, and you're going to ask yourself, now, where did that wound come from? And generally, the wound comes from one of two places because there's really only one of two kinds of humanity around. It either came from a Jewish camp or it came from a Gentile camp. Because that's all, that's all the humanity there is. You see, in the ancient days, the Gentiles were first. The only society, the oldest society we know about is the Sumerian, Sumerian society. And the Sumerians lived in, in, in what's now Iraq, ancient Babylon. That's where the city of Babylon was located. The old ancient city of Babylon, it was a very Gentile city. Then God took Abraham out of summer and he brought him out and created the Jewish nation. And so since then we have these two poles of humanity, if you will. And those two groups of people have very different outlooks on life and they get very irritated with each other very often. And it's kind of like there's this endless back and forth between the Jewish mind and the Jewish people and the Gentile mind and the Gentile people back and forth, back and forth. If your arrow came primarily from the Jews, maybe church, some of Peter's early arrows came from the church, some of Francis's early arrows came from the church, you might, in order to overcome that, move in a Jewish direction. To overcome that, I mean, you might move in a Gentile direction to overcome the Jewish arrow. I get really mixed up. I'm 55, and anyway, just hang in there with me. I'll be all screwed up in a minute, but this confuses me. But <laughs> and vice versa. If your arrow came from the Gentiles, you move in a Jewish direction. If your arrow came from the Jews, you might move in a Gentile direction in order to overcome it. It makes sense. Have to do something with the pain. My arrow came, when I was very young, from a very Gentile direction. I grew up in a Gentile home. And even the Bible talks about the positives of the Gentile life. The Bible is not just completely negative about the Gentiles, and believe you me, it is not completely positive about the Jews, not by any stretch of the imagination. If you've been around here long, for any length of time, you, you find that out. But um, my arrow came from the Gentiles because I grew up in a very Gentile home. Ephesians 5 and verse 3 
If we could get that up there, that would be great. This is some of the dark side of the Gentile life. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among saints. Now Paul is talking to the Ephesians and he's saying these are, these are elements of the Gentile life and almost all of the Ephesians came out of a Gentile home like I did. And he says sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness must not even be named among you. That's an element that is, is dominantly a Gentile mindset, heart, attitude toward life. And that must not even be named among you. And the Jews for 3,500 years have taken a very strong stand against those very things. And the thing is, that really affected my home that I grew up in for my first 20 years. I was very much a Gentile with a little splash of Christianity kind of sprinkled in every once in a while. But anyway, um, in other words, sexual immorality, what you, what, we, what you would call hypersexuality. The ancient Gentiles literally worshipped Baal, which was a fertility god. And so sexual activity was actually connected to deep spiritual spirituality. They had sex in order to fertilize their crops and this and that and the other. But hypersexuality is so much a part of the Gentile mind. When, even today, when people stop, maybe stop going to church, let go of Yahweh a little bit, that tends to come back in. Not always, but that's one of those things. In other words, in the Gentile mind, the sin in sexual morality is repression. In other words, if I repress my urges, if I deny my urges, I'm not being true to myself. In the Jewish mind, it's just the opposite. God taught the Jews and the churchmen to believe that self-control is what's important. And so now you begin to see how these two poles of life kind of interact between each other. The 60s revolution, sexual revolution, very much affected my family. It still does. It had very deep and very dark consequences uh, for me and the rest of my family. He also talks about covetousness. And it is amazing, um, my family, uh, my grandfather was uh, the operator owner of the Las Cruces Sun News newspaper down in New Mexico. And he was a very big fish in a small pond, he was a very powerful man, worked 80 hours a week, smoked four packs of cools every single day, died of emphysema at 67. Tough, tough, tough old southern democrat man. Had a lot of good about him, a lot of tough about him, this and that and the other, but he had a lot of money too. And so I learned firsthand how covetousness can make a mess out of a family and even a community. You know, the inheritance and on and, I mean, just sticky, sticky stuff. Won't go into the details, but believe me, it had a real effect on our very Gentile home. It says idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Further down in that passage, he says covetousness is idolatry. And um, idolatry takes a lot of forms, and of course we kind of think in the modern world it's kind of silly, but if you really get into it, Idolatry is very real. In other words, if one doesn't worship Yahweh, who declares himself to be the one God, rest assured you're going to worship some sort of pantheon of gods. You know, the Babylonians worshipped Bel, Nebo, gods of human wisdom, the god of the sun, Baal, the sex god. I mean, people say, well, you know, that's ancient stuff. Well, I don't know. As faith has declined just right here in our own nation... And hypersexuality has really taken hold. When I was in high school, there were three sexual diseases that you worried about. Now there's over 30. Hypersexuality is alive and well. Baal is running around. When men lessen their love and worship of Yahweh, they worship other gods. And so that was, that was the thing in my home. I think, I think the way to put it for us was 
that you, because of my grandfather, you had to be a big man of some sort. You had to either be a big-time athlete, big-time businessman, big-time actor, but the idea was you're going to be some kind of big man. And that's really what idolatry is. It's taking the human imagination, creating a god out of it in various forms, and then worshiping the god that you have made yourself, and that was very real in our family. Um, we also had a splash of church, which my brother and I absolutely hated. We hated it with a passion. We would go to church on Sunday, and we just didn't like it at all, you know. And so uh, when my brother was 12 and I was about 8, my brother got up early in the morning one Sunday morning and went out and cut the battery cables of the family car. <laughs> Most of you will meet my brother sometime, and he's about the craziest human being you've ever met in your entire life, aside from me. But anyway, I mean, he, he, he's incredible, and he's very stubborn, he's, very, he's a boxer, he's just a very... And I thought that my stepdad, who's an ex-Marine, was going to kill him. But all of a sudden, we stopped going to church. He cuts the battery cables, church stopped, everything's good. Now we can watch the NFL at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning down in Carlsbad, New Mexico. We were happy, happy, happy. Also in high school, kind of ran in with some of the parachurch groups and went to some of those, but I just couldn't figure that out. I was like, okay, now wait a minute. We're all singing about Jesus, but you're sleeping with you and you're sleeping with you and we're all smoking dope later. I'm not getting it. I'm not catching the concept here. I'm a bottom line thinker, so it didn't make sense to me. I'm not saying the parachurch groups are wrong at all, and I didn't understand what they were doing. You'll see more where my mindset took me. Other than that, I was a pretty normal kid. You know, I burned down my godfather's yard to the ground, ran my dad's pickup truck into the front of our garage, and just, you know, was generally pretty out of my mind and had a lot of fun until the divorce came. When I was six, my parents got divorced, and it was a very bitter, bitter divorce. And, um, you know, court and back and forth, and bitterness, and separation, and eventually my mom and stepdad moved to Alabama, and we were back, and I mean, lots of painful mess happened, you know, and so we were back and forth, back and forth, um, and that was really when the arrow hit me, when I was about six, and it was a very painful arrow. Back in those days, I mean, divorce just wasn't even known, you know, divorce wasn't part of the equation. And so, you know, we had about a 5 or 6% divorce rate. I didn't know one kid who'd had a divorce. I even remember as a little boy trying to process the concept of divorce. I remember that's one of those old memories of, you know, what does that word even mean? And then my parents split up, and nobody else I knew split up, and on and on and on and on. Um, at age 14, I went back to be with my dad. I'd been with my mother at 14. You could decide where you wanted to go. I wanted to be back with my dad. My mother was pretty strict. My dad was pretty unstrict. And at 14, you want unstrict, you know. <laughs> so, so you're going to find your own ways to relieve the pain, you know. So I moved back to Colorado. That's how we ended up in Colorado. But um, at the end of my freshman year, just about six, seven months later, my dad got his second divorce. And as I talk about this, I want you to understand that my dad and I are totally resolved about all this. I love him dearly, and he loves me, and everything's cool. We've talked about it. So, you know, I don't want you to feel like I'm judging him, because I'm certainly not. He had a lot of pain, too. And the divorce wasn't just his fault. So, a lot of things going on there. But the bottom line is, uh, eventually he moved in in another place, and I spent high school alone. I mean, I was pretty much alone every day of high school for three years down in Colorado Springs. So, of course, you've got to find pain relief. And... 
believe me, it was Gentile pain relief. <laughs> Uh, a, a bit of THC, a lot of alcohol, um, a lot of sexual immorality with my girlfriend, and I still feel sick about that when I think about her because I just used her like you do, you know. Everybody's body's just a toy, you know, and it's tragedy. And so, but we did an awful lot of that, and um, really the only thing that, 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 that kept me alive during that time was uh, athletics. I mean, I played football, I played baseball, I wrestled for two years, and that, that kept me in a, in a sane state, is being around the coaches and doing things. And I, I got out of high school with a 2.8, which I think is probably kind of a semi-miracle or maybe a major miracle. I don't know. But anyway, um, so I got through it. Went to college, um, and the same patterns continued, except they got worse, you know, where there's a lot of marijuana around, and then there's cocaine around, and then there's plenty of beer around, and plenty of this, and plenty of sex, and it just got worse. But the thing was, is I remember one night, I was very high on cocaine and THC, and it just hit me, um, <clears throat> hey, Charger, you're going nowhere fast. I have little words that I use when I talk to myself. It's either Sissy Boy, Charger, or James Brown. So when I say that, you understand. <laughs> Those are my three terms. So if I use one, and people just freak out, too. I say it, and I go, I said Charger to myself. People go, what? I go, well, look, I talk to myself. I like talking to myself. I'm a good conversationalist. But anyway, I just have funny, funny ways of talking to myself. But anyway, but I remember that. Um, but that's what began the next 25 years of my life. In other words, um, I met a man named Ashley Hockenberry. Well, he was my age, but anyway, he was in a campus ministry. happened to be the exact same campus ministry in Pueblo at Southern Colorado that inspired Peter to be baptized. Some of my friends, in fact, Rhett Geisler, some of his friends knew his friends really, really well. But that's a whole other discussion. But he invited me to go to something we called Soul Talk. And that was just real straightforward, you better get your life right. <laughs> so anyway, so I went to Soul, Soul Talk. I started studying the Bible. I was just sick and tired of the Gentile life, to be honest with you. And so here's the type of thing we'd study. Put up Galatians 5, uh, 19. Just give you a quick feeling of how we dealt with Gentile sin. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, if you've got an honest bone in your body, you've got to look at yourself and say, I'm not inheriting the kingdom of God, by golly. Because I do them all, uh, quite frequently, as a matter of fact. <laughs> okay, put up Acts chapter 2. This will fold in very nicely with the fact that we're going to have a baptism service. Let, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, your children, for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayer. Gentile life, Jewish solution. 
They was also talking to Jews, and of course that was the solution to the Jewish life. And believe me, we're going to talk about my Jewish life here in just a momento. But um, there's the trouble, there's the solution, and that's what we did. I was baptized into Christ November 5th, 1978. Devoted myself to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to communion, and the fellowship. And we did that. You've got to understand, we were, in, we, were, we were part of what is largely known in history as the Anabaptist movement. And Anabaptists are very, very serious people in, indeed. That's the Mennonites, that's the Baptists, that's the Campbellites, sort of what I would call social monks. They're dead serious about the gospel, and when you get baptized, you're baptized into those things. You're not just baptized into some ethereal concept of God. You're baptized into Jesus' body, and you're expected to be a part of that body. In other words, when you hear a sermon in those churches about love, that means you're going to go love somebody that week, not analyze it. <laughs> you know? In other words, when God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, we took it extremely seriously that it was our business to try to become his people. And see, it's amazing. And there's much, much good was done among us. In other words, here I am, a guy coming right out of a lot of sexual immorality, and they... They sat down, and first time we started talking about dating, they go something like this. Uh, Look here, James Brown. Uh, we don't treat the sisters in our church like you've been treating everybody out there. In other words, the sisters are not toys for your little pleasure trip, okay? You're going to learn how to be a gentleman. You're going to learn how to take those ladies on dates, and you're going to learn how to treat them right, and you're going to learn how to love them. And you're going to find yourself a wife. And then the two of you can go nuts on sex. How's that sound? Well, you know what? That sounded real fine to me. Because that's exactly what I wanted to do. Because I knew I wasn't going to get married doing what I... And, and, well, I was going to get married, but I was going to screw up three of them the way I was going. So that was music to my ears. I have friends, some of these people right here, Mike and Trent, I, I have almost all of my, friend, my deepest friendships in my former church... I mean, divorce isn't, just really isn't even known among them. I think of Mike and Trenda and Floyd and Denise and Mark and Linda and people I married, Pete and Judy. Divorce isn't even in anybody's vocabulary. So we thank God for the Anabaptists for that. We had thunderous convictions about Yahweh. In other words, the idols were denounced frequently and fully, believe me. <laughs> in other words, we weren't about idolatry in that church. We were about Yahweh. Old preacher from Texas named Richard Rogers, big old guy. He got up there and did a sermon called, Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy, talking about the saints in Hebrews 11. I was like 21. We were up in Estes Park and having this big seminar. And he stood up there and he talked to me, Of whom the world was not worthy. And let me tell you, every one of us wanted to be just like them. We walked around for two months looking at each other saying, Brother, of whom the world was not worthy. That's our goal. He also used to be able, he used to, be able to laugh. A lot of us couldn't laugh at ourselves, but Richard Rogers, he talks, he, he knew a brother who spoke on materialism a lot. Of course, we'd beat on that, and that's the other thing. That covetousness thing was um, out the window, too. And Richard Rogers talked about this, this, this old preacher from Texas who used to speak on materialism. And his, his, his culminating point was, He'd have a whole sermon on how you need to get your checkbook out and drop it in, you know. But his point was, he'd say, some of my brethren are so materialistic, they have two cars. 
Richard found out that that same preacher bought a second car about 20 years later. <laughs> He's still doing his meetings on materialism. Richard said, I drove all night to find that rascal and hear what he was going to say. Drove all night across Texas to his next meeting. Brother gets up there at the end. Richard just waiting. I'm just waiting. He goes, some of my brethren are so materialistic, they have two cars and a boat. <laughs> Richard said, I caught that old rascal. But isn't that the trap we're in, right? As religious men, of course it is. The fellowship. I can't, um, I, I can't even begin to explain how people in Anabaptist churches look at fellowship, just even after church. I mean, I'll give you an example. About three years after we left the church, we were in Gainesville, Florida at a service. And um, hadn't been to a service in three or four years and kind of been gotten out of it. But there's about this many people, maybe 250, 300 people this Wednesday night. And this is, the students aren't even back yet. But uh, when the amen is said, there's, in Anabaptist service, it's just like the light bulb comes on. I mean, the fellowship, it's just, it just, and it shocked me. I hadn't been around it in three years. It's just, holy cannoli. I mean, people just, they're setting things up, man, and they're going to help each other move, and they're going to, I mean, just this, that's where God touches them. And believe me, he touches them. We called it the one another way. And fellowship was serious business, and being committed to one another and committed to the fellowship, and I mean, it's unbelievable. I remember the brother trying to get everybody out, and I, I remembered this, you know, the rented building. And so he said about 10 o'clock, he starts, and he knows it's going to take him an hour to get everybody out the building. Okay, you can't, you can't drive them out with a whip because they're fellowshipping. People are just talking and working and praying and setting up their schedules and getting after it and just loving up. It's, I mean, it'll just blow your mind if you've never seen it. And so the brother, go, the brother says, please, brothers and sisters, we need to go ahead and move out. And he knows that means nothing. What that means is every, the crowd moves about 10 feet this way and stops. And then 10 minutes later, he's got to say, brothers and sisters, and he starts flicking the lights. Come on, come on, let's go. Come on, we got to get out. That means another 10 minutes. About 20 minutes later, we're out in the foyer, still talking. Then he boots us out into the parking lot. It kind of spills down into the parking lot, and everybody goes home by 1130 or 12. That's just normal. Because they, that's the side of Christianity that they understand. Devoted to one another. And also when we sang that song, have done with, you know, rise up, O men of God, and have done with lesser things. That's what we did. We didn't live for money. We lived for the kingdom. We had, a, we, had a, we had a saying, go anywhere and do anything for the kingdom. And people meant it. People went to India. People went to the Middle East. People went to China. People went to Africa. People went to, we, we established churches all over the United States. We established churches in 80 countries in about 25 years. We were serious business. When Jesus says we're going into all the world, in the Anabaptist world, you know what that means? Y'all going to get your little fannies up and go into all the world. It's not a theory to them. Charity works all over the world. AIDS hospital in southern Africa. Leper colonies in India. A hospital in Phnom Penh, Cambodia that served 150 people. Well, it still does. 150 people a day, free of charge. Unbelievable things. And the wonderful thing for me was because I moved in that direction from my Gentile past, I overcame a lot of that arrow. I've been married for 28 years to my wonderful wife. I have two wonderful daughters that I love dearly. Um, pretty sure George and I might just die on the same day. That's what, we're, that's what we're thinking, you know. Move on together. 
but it really helped out. The sexual immorality, I mean, I'm still sexually immoral because my heart is still sinful, but it's very different. The covetousness was very different. The idolatry, very different. And there certainly wasn't any nominal Christianity. <laughs> we could say that with, you know, <laughs> a smile in our eyes. Oh, but, but here's what, here, uh, uh, uh-oh, now we're in trouble. Because during that same great period of time, what happened? I got hit with a bunch of Jewish arrows, and so did everybody else. <laughs> you get whacked with the Gentile arrows, and later on you're going to get whacked with the Jewish arrows, right? That's just the way it works. Two poles of humanity, neither are right. So the Jewish arrows come too, and sometimes they even hurt worse than the Gentile arrows. Because in the Jewish arrows, you think, hey, everybody's trying to do the right thing, and then they show up, and they're even worse. And you're like, what in the world? You know, Peter's talked about that. Jewish arrows carry a little special kind of poison, believe me. You see, we didn't study grace. Didn't know a thing about it. Romans 14 describes us as, you know, people who, we thought we were right and everybody else was wrong. In other words, in our world, this group here is going to hell. I mean, it's tragic. I'm sorry we felt that way, but that's what we thought. We, um, we focused on discipleship and we focused on the one another way, but we didn't mean to, but somehow we created an atmosphere of condemnation. Because, see, our whole mindset was we come to church and we find out what's wrong, what we're going to do to fix it, and then go do it. What's wrong, what we're going to do to fix it, then go do it. What's wrong, what we're going to do. When you get together in discipleship groups, it's, we only played about four, four keys. Ding, 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 ding. And our consciences were dying. We had no idea about the covenants. We had no idea that God has said, I will be your people, and you, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And he means, I'm taking both ends of that bargain. We had no concept of that, none whatsoever. Salvation. My oldest daughter, whose conscience was deeply damaged by all this, um, she worried about hell from the time she was three or four till quite recently, and it did her a lot of harm. And... Um, she went to a conference in Virginia, leaders from all over the world. I'm talking about people who give you a shirt off their back, literally go die for the gospel anywhere, anytime. 300 people in a room. Brother up there says, everybody bow your heads. Everybody who really believes in their heart to go into heaven, please raise your hand. My daughter opened her eyes and looked around, and three people sheepishly held their hands up. You're talking about people who do anything for the gospel, but got no concept of salvation. It wasn't anyone's fault. We didn't mean to do that. In fact, in Romans 14, Paul says, because of people's consciences, that's what's going to happen. There's going to be a stream of Christianity that's like that. And please don't think I'm condemning my brothers because, oh, I love my brothers so deeply. When I left, anyway, I'll get to that in a minute, but Temple robbing, I've thought about that passage a hundred times. What does he mean when he talks to me, us Jews? Do you abhor idols? Yeah. Do you rob temples? I haven't gone on a temple raid. I haven't even been around many temples. I'll tell you what we did do, though. Peter talks about this a lot, and I thank God for it. We took away men's idols and then robbed their checkbooks. Told them they have to give about 11 or 12% of their gross income or they weren't right. 
That's robbing temples. We didn't read Matthew 23, Romans 2, Isaiah 48. All the passages that describe Jewish sin. Because it wasn't us. That's the Pope. That's the Episcopals. That's the Muslims. Wasn't us. Oh, really? Let me give you a nice Bart quote here. This is what happened. All reformers are Pharisees. They have no sense of humor. Deprive a total abstainer, a really religious socialist, a churchman, or a pacifist of the pathos of moral indignation, and you have broken his backbone. That's what I ran on. Moral indignation. We wagged our heads and shook our fingers and hit a wall so hard you can't even imagine. We had 400,000 people all over the world and it went down to 100,000 about that fast. Because of that right there. We left in 2003, not because anybody else was wrong. I mean, I was a ringleader. Who am I supposed to pick point finger at? Nobody. That's who. Autumn and I walked out of a service in October of 2003. She was 12 years old. And I told her, I said, Autumn, we're going to leave the church. And Autumn's about tough as a piece of boot leather. And she just kind of said, well, okay. I'm good. That's what she always does. I'm good. What's your problem? You know, that kind of thing. But it was a divorce. It was deep business. A few years later, I was reading a book by Brian McLaren. It's called A Generous Orthodoxy. I'm sitting there reading it in a, in a, in a, in a Starbucks on Broadway during my quiet time. And I, I sat there, and he talked about people leaving the Anabaptist movements, leaving the Mennonites, or leaving deep Baptist churches or Campbellite churches. And he said, that's why people can't leave, because it's a big, big deal. It's like a divorce. He was the first man person outside of that who'd never been in that environment who understood it because he took the time to talk and study it it is deep water I put the book over my face and wept and wept and I still weep because I love my brothers even those who don't think I'm saved anymore I love them dearly I still owe them much but I had to go so, of course, we wandered around in circles. We became wandering Jews, went to a zillion different churches, and then, I don't know, a couple months later, Tanya Lyons called us up and said, I'm going to go to a place called Lookout Mountain. I've been praying about it and got a vision. If you know Tanya, she does have a deep spirituality, and she said, I'm going to go to a place called Lookout Mountain. Why don't you guys come? We went up. And, of course, we go up there in Peter's sermons, and he's talking about the seventh day, and he's separating eternity and time, and talking about new men and how we couldn't build new men. and You know the character Peanut that Jeff Dunham uses? Where he goes like this? And you're just kind of like, I didn't know what was going on. Believe me. But I knew there was something terribly great in the middle of it for me. And so... I just kept trying, and then I, we came to a service. About eight of us went to this service up there at Lookout. There's about eight old Pharisees. I call us the hack patrol. We're all lined up in a row, and Peter does a sermon called Game Over, Time to Party. And what he's talking about is, hey, you Pharisees, it's time to quit all that mess, and it's time to 
believe in God. And we started, I mean, we just started crying and weeping. And we realized we are judgmental. There's an ugliness in our heart. This is the ugliness of Judaism. This is what happens. This is Jewish humanity. Was there good in it? Yes. Was there things that were really wrong? Yes. And Peter just, I mean, that, I mean, that sermon just, it just still, I still, it was like a thunderbolt. It was exactly what I felt about my Gentile life when I was 20 years old. It was the same thing. The same conviction of just, this is terribly sick in so many ways. My backbone was breaking. Only when the blind alley of ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical humanity has been reached is it possible to raise radically and seriously the problem of God. All that occurs up to that point is harmless illusion. We require real ammunition when we discover that we can neither walk around the church nor make our way through it. That's where I was. I was at the end of the blind alley of ecclesiastical humanity. And it's a shock. And you get busy not judging everybody in church and start realizing you need a lot of help. You start looking for real ammunition. Because, see, I'd come to the end of my Gentile life at age 20, and that's a blind alley. And at 45, I'd come to the end of the ecclesiastical or Jewish blind alley. What do you do then? What do you do then? Well, I started reading. <laughs> Didn't know what else to do, but I read Peter's books two times each. Dance Steps with Zombies. Eternity Now. I read Luther's commentary on Galatians where he talks about old monks dying scared to death because they were works righteousness men. Brilliant, loving monks who'd laid down their life for the people of Europe. Scared to death to die because they did not understand grace at all. He said, I've seen, I watched a murderer die with more peace in his eyes than some of my old monk brethren. You start looking for real ammunition. Read Bunyan, read Bruce, read N.T. Wright, read and read and read. Oh, and then I ran into Karl Barth. And that wasn't reading, that was called drug addiction. Wasn't snorting, wasn't using THC, but I'm going to tell you something. Six o'clock every morning for six years, I was in my study. Coffee here. I melt down Carl Barth into a tube, stick it in my arm, and just... I read his commentary for six years. I read it six times, and I'm, please don't believe I'm bragging. I was an addict and still am. Because my soul was so parched and I had no concept of these things. I didn't know how to separate time from eternity. I didn't know the things that Peter taught us. And so I did it and I did it and I did it. And then Peter's preaching again and again. But you see, here's the thing. It's Peter's preaching about eternity, about time, that started to get me to the point where five years later, the book of Romans opened to me like this big flower 
that just opened up this, that just emanated this fragrance into my nostrils and just, it, it, it's still that way. And I'd never had that. We didn't read Romans 2. We didn't read Romans 7. We didn't read Romans 9 through 11. But it opened up like a flower and it just, I just, I just inhaled it. That's happening with Isaiah right now. Try to read the book of Isaiah with this paradigm in your mind. The seventh day is a solution to everything for everybody. Time and eternity are separated. The Jews are no better than the Gentiles. I'll tell you right now, it'll open like a flower. I couldn't read the book of Isaiah before. But now I'm an Isaiah junkie. Now I'm learning to hope in this. Ephesians 2.15 says that he might make one new man out of the two, thus making peace. That's the hope of all humanity. In Isaiah, Yahweh calls the Moabites, whose descendants are shooting rockets into Israel today, hated Yahweh then, hate the Jews now, hated them then. But he says to them, come and eat. Eat what's free and good. And everywhere, the seventh day, the seventh day, the seventh day. In Isaiah 30, he said the seventh day, the day when it's all recreated, will have the brightness of seven days. And all will be right. And Egypt and Assyria and Israel will be in this beautiful relationship. I couldn't read that before because I always thought the church age had to create that, and we all know the church age isn't going to create that. The church age isn't going to bring about Assyria and Egypt like that. The church age isn't going to save Moab. They're killing Christians like fleas out there right now. It's not the church age. That's the seventh day where it's all going to get straightened out. And now, I learn to put my hope in that. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8 says this. But since we belong to the day, the seventh day, not light in the sense you've got to go confess your sins, do that, but that's not the point. Since we belong to the day, the day is everywhere when you start looking for it. It's everywhere. Since we belong to the seventh day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see, the tragedy with me and my brothers was that our helmet was about that thick. We were playing in the NFL with the helmets of 1920. And we got our heads kicked in. The helmet of the hope of salvation. It's a helmet. That means the seventh day and the resurrection from the dead and God creating new men and making Egypt and Assyria and Israel to be great friends is perceived through the mind first. You see, my brothers and I, we had a great big breastplate of faith expressing itself through love. And we tried to love. 
We didn't try to be Pharisees. We didn't mean to be Pharisees. We didn't know we were going to become Pharisees. Nobody meant to do that. It's not anybody's fault. We just didn't know. Because we didn't work on the helmet of the hope of salvation. When Paul said people were going to do that, and that's why Paul said, okay, all you practical Christians in Romans 14, do not throw rocks at the theologians. And you theologians do not throw rocks at the practical people. So it's like, oh, am I supposed to say, well, now I'm right and my old brethren are wrong? Uh, no. That's not the concept. That's not, that's not how it works. I love the practical Christians, and I love the theologians, and I love Peter. I know some of you sit around and say, Peter takes us on these long bike rides to the intellectual mountains. Good. You can't build a helmet of a hope of salvation without it. We, we started a small group, Pamela, Luke, and Chris Keene, and George and I, just getting together the four. I tried to get my three worthless cats to come in, but they're just too selfish. They don't show up. But anyway, we're sitting there. We're talking about the seventh day or something and talking about salvation itself. And Pamela just pops up and says, oh, that's a done deal. It still shocks me when people do that. It's like, I'm still, you know, I, I have to work on the idea of, you really going to heaven? I don't know. I hope so. Pamela Luke goes, that's a done deal. That's how it's supposed to be. That's the helmet of the hope of salvation. See what I mean? Now, I think, what, I think the idea is that we should strive for both, right? Remember the movie Radio? Coach Jones and Radio are in the cafe. Waitress comes over and says, Radio, do you want apple pie or cherry pie? Radio goes, I want both. Breastplate of faith and law for a helmet to hope of salvation. Let's build helmets and put them on, and it takes a lot of intellectual work. And let's have a big old breastplate of faith and love. Faith and love is primarily for this life, primarily. Faith and love will be in heaven, but now that breastplate's for this life. I mean, you need a breastplate because they're going to come after your heart and it needs help. And we need the helmet of the hope of salvation. And that's those bike rides that Peter takes us on. And Bart takes you on. And you just got to pay that price to understand it. There's no way around it. God doesn't apologize for some things having to take a lot of effort. You having to use your mind and your heart and having to stretch it and work it. But then the breastplate of faith and love. What, what if we have this, 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 this helmet of salvation? What, what if the fellowship here becomes electric? And it is. I'm not, I don't mean that in a critical way. But let me assure you, there's a sweetness in it that you can't imagine. Just to stay for an extra 30 minutes and love your brothers and sisters is a very, very delightful thing. The other thing we could do is we could think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who was eventually martyred by the Nazis, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was primarily influenced by Karl Barth. It's funny, all the churches claim him. Protestant churches claim him. Anabaptists say, oh, no, he's one of ours, man. He wrote The Cost of Discipleship, Life Together. He understands that. Well, he understands that for one reason, one reason alone. He didn't grow up that way. He grew up with the helmet of salvation, but he, went, he grew up in a family that didn't hardly go to church even though they had great faith. 
He came in the 30, early 30s over here to America, and he started going to a place called the Abyssinian Baptist Church, and he was hanging out with my old brethren, except it was the first big mega church in America, one of the few and first, big mega, 14,000 people, almost entirely black, and right in the middle of Harlem. And he learned about the breastplate from them. See, I'm not going to throw rocks at those brethren. I'm going to learn about the breastplate. And I don't even care if they throw rocks at me. I don't give a rat's rear end. I just want to learn. And see, he had that helmet, and he went and got that breastplate from the Anabaptists. We can do the same thing. We can learn. We can grow. We can have both. Most of the world doesn't hear about the helmet of salvation like Peter helps, helps you with. Believe me. It's a blessing beyond blessings. My task after listening to a few years was to sit down and find out if what he was saying was true. And I believe with all my heart it is. But then we can learn to love in greater and greater ways. Build, make that helmet thicker and thicker. So when we're sitting in a prison one day and we're heading for a hanging gallows, you say like Bonhoeffer, good. He goes, oh, death. Oh, death. He was so excited to move on to the next realm because Karl Barth had given him a big old helmet of salvation. He believed it. And the German guards that hung him said, we've never seen a man die like that because of the helmet of salvation. And in this life, we can learn to have that sweet fellowship and commitment to one another. Well, you know, in Isaiah 41 and 42, God um, talks about, he, Isaiah, Isaiah compares Jesus with the Gentiles. In Isaiah, Isaiah 41 is a scathing expose of idolatry. Isaiah 42 is, behold my servant. You see, Jesus is the answer for Gentile life. And then Isaiah 48 and 49, that's the second great servant song. Isaiah 49 is a scathing rebuke of Israel and all their goofiness. Men like me. And again, what's the solution? Behold my servant. Because on the night he died, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take it and eat it. And this is my blood. Pour it out for you. Except I'm mixed up on which one's white, you know. Which is wine, which is the regular. And they're both blood and mercy. I learned that from Peter. But this is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. And like the great theologian Sinbad said, You didn't know the Ozark Mountain Daredevils and Sinbad were theologians, did you? Sinbad said this. He said, we'd be at the mall with my mom. And when it was time to go, she starts screaming right in the middle of the mall. Every last one of y'all get in the car right now. Every last one of y'all right now. And that's what God says. All y'all Gentiles and all y'all Jews, ain't none of you right. Quit throwing rocks at each other. Come and eat without payment. 
eat real food, drink real drink. It says that right there in Isaiah. So all y'all come and have communion this morning. You know, when you think about the helmet, I mean, it's, it, it seems like a pretty hard thing to do because it's just, I mean, what do we know of resurrection? I mean, what do we know of the new Jerusalem? What do we know of new men? We know old men. The old Jerusalem's on fire today. We're still sinners. So what we can do is we can use our minds because that's where it's perceived. In Romans 12 it says, this is the renewing of your mind. To simply think the thought of eternity renews your mind. To simply think about the new Jerusalem renews your mind. To simply think new men renews your mind. You have to fight and struggle with it, and you're probably not going to feel all that much because we don't know anything about it, but the mind can simply perceive it if we'll just think those things. And it's terribly powerful. It's terribly powerful. And we can think those thoughts. And we can also think this. That God is making one new man out of the two of us. Have a great banquet service. Thank you very much.